2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and I will refrain from burdening with you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Well, we're in a section of 2 Corinthians that doesn't often get preached on. And in the rare times that it does get ventured into, well, it'll often just get, focus will just be on one particular verse, usually verse 14, which talks about Satan disguising himself as an angel of light. And, and the, I think the reason that that one gets focused on is it, it's all sounds very super spiritual, but it, it, in reality, it's actually a very practical and a very demonstrable thing within the Christian church today. And we'll talk more about that when we get to it. But overall, um, over the next two weeks, we're going to be covering the whole of chapters 11 and 12, uh, and they're not the most pleasurable bits of it to read. There are two key words that keep on coming up through chapters 11 and 12, and they're not the nicest words, they're not the nicest topics, and they're not the most religious of words or the most theological of topics that we like to discuss. And the two words are fool or foolishness, or foolish, and that comes up eight times. And the other word is boast, or boasting, or boasted, or boastful, and that comes up 15 times in those two chapters. And the argument that Paul is going to make through chapters 11 and 12 um, is don't go boasting in ourselves and beware of those who do boast in themselves because that's foolishness. 
And Paul actually does a bit of boasting of his own, and I think he's actually doing it to demonstrate the foolishness that it is. Um, now, that's what we're going to be looking at more next week. Uh, but this week, we're just going to be looking at the beginnings of chapter 11, where Paul explains his motivation for playing the fool, um, and because that's what he's doing a bit to get his point across, playing the fool. So, chapter 11 begins, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Now, now what's he going on about there? A divine jealousy? That I mean, Divine means godly, a godly jealousy? Isn't jealousy a bad thing? And, and isn't jealousy always a bad thing? Well, no, it's not. Sometimes it is right to be jealous. And sometimes it is godly to be jealous. Let's look at some readings. Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. And Exodus 34, for you shall worship no other God, for Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, take care lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he made with you, and, and make a carved image, the form of anything that Yahweh your God has forbidden you. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 5, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for Yahweh, your God, in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Joshua chapter 24. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Are you sensing a bit of a pattern here? Don't follow after false gods because the one true God is jealous. We must reserve our worship for Yahweh and for Yahweh alone. Now, this is something which our folk are probably sick of hearing hearing me say it, um, but I'm aware that there's a whole bunch of new people who have suddenly started listening to, to these messages since um, we've had to take worship online. So I, I might just share this again. So some of you might have noticed that I was read, as I was reading there, you might have seen the word the Lord written and you heard me say the word Yahweh. And there's a reason I do that. It's because 
whenever we see in our, in our Bibles, wherever it says the Lord, and it's in all capitals, the actual Hebrew word behind that um, is God's personal name, Yahweh, or as the Germans would pronounce it, Jehovah, right? Um, and so sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament, you'll see Lord or the Lord written with a capital L, little O-R-D. In that case, the, word, the Hebrew word is Adonai, which means the Lord. But whenever it says capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord in all capitals, it's the actual Hebrew word is God's personal name, Yahweh. Um, sometimes you'll see the word God written in all capitals. It's the same. Whenever the word God is written in all capitals, it's God's personal name, Yahweh. Um, if it's written in capital G, little O-D, then the word is Elohim, which means God's. Okay. So, and if you don't believe me, open up your own Bible. Turn to, it's usually right in the front there somewhere, you'll find the translator's notes and they'll explain that there. They'll explain the convention that, that those translators have used. And for me, I, I actually just find it, it, it opens up the scriptures in a whole new personal way when we realise this. And, and I read God's personal name there on purpose because if we just read the Lord is jealous and we should only be worshipping the Lord, well, anybody might call their God the Lord or a Lord. But when we realise that, that it's not just saying it's not any old God that's supposed to be worshipped here, when we realise that it is God's personal name, Yahweh, is who is to be worshipped, it just brings it into a whole new personal light for us. So... There's been a couple of times um, in my life where I've had opportunity to share the gospel with a Hindu. And the thing with Hinduism, and this is something that I was taught very early on, is if you're sharing your faith with a Hindu, then, then make sure that they know that our God is a jealous God and that to become a Christian, they have to forsake every other God. You see, because as Hindus, they worship a multitude of gods. And if you present to them the gospel, they might make you all very happy. Oh, yes, I'll become a Christian. But what we don't realise is they just take Jesus and they put him up on their mantelpiece alongside all of their other gods that they already worship. Um, and yes, I'll worship Jesus, um, but they just worship him among all of the others. But our God is a jealous God. We worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Now, I've heard some people are very anti-Christian um, and I've heard anti-Christians describe God as some kind of egotistical megalomaniac because, you know, oh, he just wants to be the only God and, and your God, he's so exclusive and they think this is a bad thing. Well, well the thing is, he is the only God. Every other so-called God is the demonic trying to seduce people away from the only true God. Um, and, and, and God is exclusive because he is one. There is only one. And so God's jealousy is about truth. And his jealousy is actually about the protection of his people. So... Let me explain the difference between good jealousy, um, godly jealousy, 
and bad jealousy. Okay, what could I be jealous of um, in a bad way? Righto, I love operating machinery. Now, I reckon the ultimate machine to master would be a helicopter. I would love to fly helicopters. Uh, but I'm not going to bother saving up all my pennies and scrimping and saving so that one day I might be able to afford to, to do a helicopter licence because I know that even if I did that, I could never afford to buy a helicopter. And even if somebody gave me a helicopter so that I could go visiting people on farms, wouldn't that be cool, hey? If I just come and take off from town and go out to your place and land, land just outside your house or near the shed where you're, oh, that'd be so cool. But even if, even, if some, even if I could do that, I couldn't afford to run the thing. And even if I could afford to run it, I know that I couldn't afford to maintain it, all right? So i just written it off. But... If I was to see somebody who is obscenely rich, right, somebody who has their own private jet and their own private helicopter, and I could find myself harbouring a bit of jealousy there. But even so, I think probably the real word for that might be envy. But if another man started making a move on my wife, and he wanted to gain her affections for himself, it would be right for me to be jealous because he has no right to take her affections. She is my wife and I am her husband. Did you see the difference there? Envy is, is when I want something that somebody else has, and that, that's a bad thing. But godly jealousy is when something is rightfully mine and morally mine. It belongs to me and to me alone and somebody is trying to take it away. That is a godly jealousy. And what we're seeing here in chapter 11 is the responsibility of godly leaders in the church to have a divine jealousy to guard the flock on God's behalf from being seduced away by false teaching into the worship of a false image of God. Now, th th there's no doubt about it. One of the worst sins that the people of Israel were condemned for, and they were condemned for it over and over and over again, one of the worst sins is idolatry. Now, sometimes people really clutch at straws to try and, try and make what we read in the Old Testament more relevant for us today, or what we read from, from the cultures that the Bible is addressing to make more relevant for us in our culture today. And, and there seems to be a current understanding of modern idolatry that defines an idol as, as anything other than God that gives us a bit of satisfaction or that gives us a bit of pleasure. You know, and so people talk about sport being an idol or work being an idol or, or holidays being an idol. And, and one well-known preacher that I, I've heard, he, he takes this to the extreme such that even good things he considers to be an idol if we enjoy them. And, and he sort of, I'm not really sure how he does this, but he sort of says, you know, as long as we're enjoying these rather than enjoying God or finding satisfaction from these things rather than finding satisfaction in God, then it becomes an idol. Now, I think I sort of get the point that he's making, uh, but I think he's quite wrong. 
uh, it completely misses the seriousness of, of idolatry and what idolatry actually is as demonstrated in the Old Testament. Uh, in his zeal to try and make idolatry a, a relevant topic for his Western city-based listeners, he's actually made up a new definition for idolatry. And by doing that, we miss what it's actually about. But the thing is, we don't need to do that. Uh, idolatry is very relevant to us today. Even in the true sense of the word, idolatry is the worship of a false image of God. And there is plenty of that happening in the church today. I believe idolatry in the true sense of the word is rampant in the Western church of today. Not because we get enjoyment from our families and not because we get satisfaction from our jobs, and not because I feel a sense of accomplishment from, from preaching, and not because we get a sense of fulfilment from serving. Idolatry is rampant because many people today, even people who call themselves Christians, worship a false image of God. The Lord our God, Yahweh, reveals himself in the scriptures. But, but instead of worshipping God as God reveals himself, many people decide that they're going to make up their own image of God. And so their God might be more fashionable or he might be less dictatorial or their God might be less exclusive or more woke. That's a, that's a new term that I've only learned in probably the last six months, Woke. Uh, if you don't know what it is, look it up on the internet. I think it's to do with um, more aware of social goings-ons. Um, yeah. But what they do is, is they make up a God in the image of what they think God should be, and that's the image of God that they worship. And, and usually their God is, is a little image of themselves. So for some, he's a God who's going to make them rich. For some, he's a God who's going to care about their particular social cause. And for some, he, he's like, more like a grandfather figure than, than like a, a father. Right? You know what I mean by that? He, he, a, a grandfather gives all of the love but none of the discipline. And for others, he's a God who requires no reckoning for sin and he's definitely a God who would never send anyone to hell. And so the gospel gets changed. It's no longer a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. It's no longer a, a message of discipleship and following Jesus in obedience and love. It, it becomes a social gospel or it becomes more of a self-centred gospel or an ego-building gospel. And in such churches, the Bible is often replaced with psychology. Preaching is more, becomes more like motivational speaking. And worship becomes more about me and more about me enjoying a concert than what it is about me yielding my entire life into the hands of the Lord, which is what true worship really is. And so today's reading is about Paul taking on the false teachers who were leading that Corinthian church into idolatry. And I say this confidently because Paul uses the same language that gets used in the Old Testament to combat idolatry. 
he talks about divine jealousy. That's godly jealousy. And every time that I can think of that that, that phrase gets used in, in the Bible about God being jealous, it's usually to do with, with idolatry. And he uses the husband and wife relationship, which, which God often uses in, 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 um, in the Old Testament to, to describe his relationship with Israel and how that is put at risk when, when um, Israel go and chase after other gods. It's like an unfaithful wife. And Paul says, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You know, when Paul preached the gospel, he preached the pure, unadulterated gospel. And they believed it. And they gave their hearts to Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ, pure, holy. And when Jesus returns, that's the way that we are to be presented to him. Now, for you big tough blokes, uh, that's that's an image that you might just have to come to grips with, <laughs> that, that you're going to be a bride one day. In fact, you are a bride now. You are a bride in waiting. But Paul says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, What does Christ expect of his bride while we are awaiting his return? You know, when we hear so many different messages, when there's so many different Christian denominations and and, and we all apparently have different beliefs to each other at some level, how can we know that we're on the right track? And, And how can we know that we've got it right? Well, it's pretty simple, really. What God is looking for is a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I buried my uncle during the week. And um, so I've had opportunity to think about death and dying and funerals. And it was a bit of a shock to the system to do a funeral in the current climate where we have a limit of, of 10, and even with an exemption, we're only allowed to have a total of 13. Um, and so I've thought a fair bit about this during the week. And, and I was thinking, you know, how do I want to be remembered? And I came to the conclusion, as I was looking at this reading, I hope that when my time comes, that I will be remembered as a man who had a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You know, that's enough. If that's all that is said in my eulogy, that's enough. And that was the path that Paul had given the Corinthian church to follow. But when Paul left, the false teachers came into town and they preached a different gospel. And the Jesus that they proclaimed was not the Jesus that Paul had taught them about. And it seems that they just went along with it and they just let it happen. Verse 4, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now, I can read this, and for me it's sort of like, wow, this sort of stuff was happening in the early church? mere decades after Jesus was raised from the dead? 
It, it, it seemed to me like he could just as well be talking about the church of today. A different gospel gets proclaimed and, oh, oh that, that doesn't really matter. We'll, we'll just let sleeping dogs lie, hey? Or, you know, we don't really want to make an issue out of this. Uh, we, we don't go, want to go making a fuss. Let's, let's just all get along. And, and just put up with each other's intricacies and, and let them believe what they want to believe. Or someone in a church can, can bring a strange new teaching in about Jesus. Uh, some, in some denominations, there are church leaders, for goodness sake, who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and the attitude gets taken in the church, well, that, that's just what they personally believe. That's not what all of us believe. But the point is... The church put up with it easily enough. Uh, a different Jesus, a different gospel is just coming into the church and they just let it happen. Do you know what that equals? Idolatry. Now, there's something important here and it's about the, the deceptiveness of Satan. Many of the people who made up the church in Corinth had converted from paganism, right? They knew all about the worship of idols. They knew what that was all about because they used to do it. But when Paul preached the gospel to them, they turned away from their dead pagan idols to worship the living Lord Jesus Christ. And they knew that they would never, ever return to, those, to the idol worship that they had once left. But Satan was more cunning than that. He made them think that they were still worshipping Jesus. He was cunning in the way that, in the same way as what he deceived Eve. How did Satan manage to get Eve to disobey God? Well, he did it by getting her to believe that she was going to be more godly, that she would be more like God if she would eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let's have a look at that. Let's see how Satan twists things. So we're going to Genesis. Now, first of all, he misrepresented the word of God. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And at this point, top marks to Eve, she corrected the way that Satan twisted what God had said. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. All right, so, so we can eat from all of the other trees. We just can't touch that one in the middle. But then Satan follows it up with an untruth and a half-truth. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And that's sort of like, that, that, that's definitely an untruth. And then he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And rather than talking to going and talking to God about it, now remember at this stage, God used to walk in the garden with them. But rather than going and asking God about this, she just accepted it readily enough. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, that's just what you lot are like. And you know what? In churches where I've seen a false gospel or a false Christ being proclaimed, that is pretty much the way that it came into the church. Firstly, the true word of God gets misrepresented. And usually um, it gets made to look more legalistic and more restrictive than what it actually is. Uh, The law of God therefore gets presented in a very bad light. Or this is a bad thing that God must have said. Terrible, terrible. And then a new message gets proclaimed in its place. And it will often have attached with it this. If you believe this, then you'll be more godly. This is what God intends. God wants you to be like this. And if you're like this, you'll be more like God. And then we learn that, oh, it'll make you more wise. And here I think we have the bait of Satan. It's the bait of Satan is practicalities, appearances, and enlightenment. All right, so so Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, practicalities. The fruit looked really good, appearances, and she believed that it would make her wise, enlightenment. And a lot of false gospels and, and a false view of Jesus often takes a very similar line. This is a gospel that works. This is a gospel that's practical. You don't have to worry about that other stuff. No, nobody wants to believe that nonsense. How about you? We'll, we'll teach this other stuff. It's more practical for people and, and, and it's more believable for them. And then often the ones who bring the false teaching in appear to be God, godly. They, they appear to be very nice sorts of people. And we'll come, come to that more shortly. And often those who have taken the bait and swallowed the hook believe that they are the ones who have been enlightened. You know, we know stuff now. And if only you could see a bit of sense, and you could know it too, and you would be far better off. Righto? So the critical thing that Paul is pointing out is the truth of the gospel message isn't dependent upon eloquence or convincing arguments or the power or the control of the person who is delivering the the message. In fact, Paul admits to them, hey, I'm not very skilled at speaking. And he compares himself to the false apostles and, and he refers to them as super apostles. And like they must have been very impressive sorts of people. Uh, They probably were very eloquent and they probably were very skilled at speaking and they probably did have plenty of convincing arguments in in their repertoire and they probably did come across as very important or powerful sorts of people. But that is not what counts. You see, that's not what's important. What is important is what is true. It's not about how well it gets communicated. It is about how true it is. And this is something that Paul was able to say, I'm not very good at public speaking, but I do know stuff. 
and I do have a bit of knowledge and I am telling you the truth. Now, I hope and I pray that I might teach well. I hope and I pray that, that I can present the gospel to you in a way that you get it and understand it and, and, and that you God can speak to you through what I deliver. But my greatest prayer is that the message that I preach will be true because that's what counts. I would rather preach the truth in a way that's hard to listen to than to have all of the eloquence and be the most entertaining speaker in the world and tell you something that's just not true. Moving on. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, this might be a new thing for you to consider. But when a person invests in a ministry, whether they're investing financially or whether they're investing their, their time and their commitment, something I've noticed is that in a way, it tends to give them a greater ownership of that ministry. Um, well, actually, I'm not really sure what comes first. It's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing. M maybe they commit um, because they already have this ownership of it. Or maybe they have ownership of it because they've committed. It, it could be either. But regardless of that, a greater connection, a, a greater ownership of the ministry seems, seems to happen. And that can be good. It can be very good. But it could also have a downside. Sometimes we become fixated on the things that we like about a particular ministry because we're supporting it. And, 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 and this is, we're part of this, we love this. And, but in doing that, sometimes we become blinded to the faults and blinded to the fallacies. We get on board with the mission of this ministry, but then we're blinded to some bad stuff. And I think that's what was happening in the church in Corinth. When Paul preached in Corinth, he never took a brass razoo from them. Um, he was being supported by other churches, including the church in Macedonia. But, but when the false apostles came in, they weren't too proud to take money. In fact, I think that was probably one of their key things. They, they came to this Corinthian church and, oh, yes, yes, you were very willing to accept your money. And so the Corinthian church invested into these false apostles. And it seems like this became a bit of a thing. They were investing in the false teaching and they were, sorry, they were invested into the false teachers, but they weren't invested into Paul. And so somehow that gave the false teachers a bit more credibility in their eyes. And that is a thing. Uh, if you open your eyes, you, you may notice that amongst people. You may even notice it in yourself. Right. So... I said that we would come back to talk about appearances. When Satan deceived Eve, the fruit appeared lovely. And do you know what a false teacher looks like? A false teacher, somebody who proclaims a false gospel, well, they look pretty much exactly the same as a very godly preacher. Yep, that's right. We can't tell them by their appearances. They may seem very nice. 
They may seem very loving. They, loving. they may be very entertaining. They may, may be very good communicators. They might have a, a very charismatic sort of a personality. They might be everything that you are looking for in a preacher, except for one thing, truth. And Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. What do they look like? Well, they look just like godly leaders. And this is where we come to verse 14, which is probably the best known verse in this passage. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Uh, now, there's been times when, when I've addressed this in, in various churches where false teachers have introduced strange teachings into churches and, and I've come to the leaders of those churches and, and shared my concerns and their response, well, oh, but these are very nice people. Oh, you, you've got the wrong idea, Michael. They, <laughs> what you're suggesting is that they're servants of Satan, but they, <laughs> but they are so nice. Satan, an evil angel, can pretend to be a good angel. And do you know what makes false teachers dangerous? It's the fact that they look just like godly people. They might be very nice. They might be very nice people who teach a lie. They look like servants of God, but the truth is missing. You know, Satan, he knows all about traps. Um, what's the best way for me to catch a mouse? Well, I don't go and put poison as bait on the trap, do I? I find that peanut paste is about the best bait, bait that I can find. Put a bit of peanut paste there and, and the mouse goes, ooh, that's food, that looks nice, that looks just like food. And snap, got him. But what's the fate of these false teachers? Their end will correspond to their deeds. I found myself wondering, and, and other people have asked me this before, do all false teachers know that they are false teachers or, or are they ignorant of this? And as I thought about this, the answer I've come to is, well, probably not, but they should know this. If somebody is going to teach or if somebody is going to take it upon themselves to bring a new understanding of a new belief about Jesus or about the gospel into a church, they're taking on, and if that is different to the traditional gospel that has been preached throughout the millennia, then they, it, it, they really should, it behoves them to, to go to the scriptures and see, is, is what I'm preaching, does it line up with the true image of God? And if what I teach doesn't line up with the scriptures, then I'm teaching a lie. And if I'm teaching a lie, then I am a false teacher. And if I'm a false teacher, I'm not a servant of God. I'm an agent of Satan. It's pretty simple, really. Why would a godly man or a godly woman ever proclaim a gospel that is not the truth? 
The greatest motivation, I believe, for preaching the gospel is love. If I love God, and if I love the people who I am preaching to, if I love you who are listening to this today, I can proclaim to you nothing other than the gospel truth. And even if you don't like what I'm saying, I still have to tell this to you because I love you. If I truly love, I cannot proclaim any other Jesus than the true Jesus who loves you and I both. Why did Paul continue to proclaim the truth? Verses 10 and 11 say, tell us that it's because he loved them. Why, even when they rejected Paul, did he continue to preach the truth and try and pull them back on track? Why is he correcting their theology even now? It's because he loves them. And that's the way that it should be in the church today. Many of God's children in the church of today are being seduced into a worship of a false image of God. And it is the responsibility of godly leaders in the church to have a divine jealousy to guard the flock on God's behalf from being seduced by false teaching into the worship of a false image of God. Who will those godly leaders be? Who will have a godly jealousy to guard God's flock? And which one of us will support them? Love isn't love unless it embraces truth and exposes every false image of Christ as the idolatry that it is. Let's be loyal to the real Jesus. Let's get back to the God that the Christians have believed in throughout the millennia the God that the apostles proclaimed to us, the God that we learn about in the scriptures, the God who challenges us personally in so many ways. Let's be disciples of the real Jesus and let's follow this Jesus with with our whole hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we want to know the real you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel as it's recorded in the scriptures. Lord, we accept it. We believe it. We delight in you. We delight in your word. O Lord, guard our hearts and our mind. Give us wisdom and discernment to help us to recognize any false teaching. Lord, we repent of any false image that we've ever had of you. And we direct our worship to you and to you alone. Lord, give us boldness. Lord, give us a divine jealousy. Give us a godly jealousy that we would not bear to have a false gospel in our church and that we would not bear to to have a false Jesus proclaimed in your church. Lord, help us to love our brothers and sisters enough to embrace truth and to reject a lie. And Lord, we want to thank you for the, for the glorious truth that it is. 
that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus saves us from our sins, that Jesus died to save us from our sins and that Jesus rose from the dead to bring us eternal life. Lord, we thank you for the glorious truth that that we are to repent of sin and turn our hearts towards you, forsaking all others to follow you and you alone. Oh, what a glorious truth this is. And we rejoice in it. Praise be to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.